Well, hello, Robin. How are you doing, sir? Um, good. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, sir. Appreciate that. Thank you for coming out and uh, hanging out with us on Word Horde and uh, also our sister uh, website, uh, The Fullness of Meaning Christian Ministries. So uh, we're going to post this hopefully on, on both of them if everything goes right with the uh, audio technical side of it. And, um, but I just want to say thank you, uh, once again for, for coming out and, uh, uh, wanted to, to preface, uh, you know, the, the, the listening audience is kind of to what we're going to be discussing. We don't know How about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you tell me as well. <laughs> so that, that's that. There you go. So go, go forward. No, I'm just joking. Well, we, 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 we had talked about, Robin and I have talked about, um, you know, this format, that format, uh, we could ask these questions, A, A B and C. And, um, we had such a good conversation uh, th the last time, uh, and it went on for o over an hour. I guess like an hour and 39 minutes or 40 minutes, something like that. It was up there, you know. Um, I, I'm, I'm a rhythmatist, so I, I know I can catch these things. <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't even need a watch, right? <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's what they say. Nah, I'm just joking. But, uh, uh, but we, went, we went on for some time uh, at length and just simply enjoyed talking. We talked about music. Uh, one of our one of our um, heroes, uh, uh, Phil Kagi, who I actually play for, I've been playing with for almost thirty years, um, uh, and uh, co coincidentally uh, was also uh, one of the uh, uh, the first people to introduce me to the idea of universal reconciliation, and um, uh, another scholar that was one of his friends. Uh, guitar player friends that I played with as well was a Gene Fort. You might not know him, but uh, uh, excellent scholar. And we would used to we would teach music, and then we get out in the hallway just as soon as we finished our lessons, and we would argue in the Greek. And I'm going, no, couldn't be that because I was a Calvinist at the time, you know. And uh, no, it couldn't be. That's not the Greek, you know. And uh, so the the Greek won, and you didn't, and all that stuff. And and um, you know, it really came down to. Um, and kind of what you know you had presented well the one the, the video that I saw on the the general thrust of meaning and I, I and I love that choice word that you, that you used when you read the the Bible from a comprehensive collective whole you see the thrust of it and you know it's just and, and I, I'm looking at the one of the books that you wrote called the, the biblical cosmos. I, I love, you know, and I, I'm not going to tell you what, where you were coming from or why you wrote it, but I can, I can say from just reading part of it that, you know, we got to be very careful as how God spoke, you know, I mean, he, you know, in some cases he, you know, I, I could say he was talking to his wife, his bride, and these are marital calibrated terminologies from God to his wife. Sometimes mm -hmm. in, in anger for her, for her cheating on him, if you will, just like we do. So we have associative, you know, um, pathos with with this God, and this is the logos. This is Christ talking preincarnately, preincarnately to uh, his bride, you know, Israel, and to us. Um, but I, I'm talking a lot. I, just <laughs> sorry about that, people. Um, well, no, no. I mean, that reminds me of um, a very important thread in the Christian tradition, which Calvin refers to as divine accommodation. And it's not Calvin's idea. I mean, it goes back to the fathers, that when God 
communicates with humans, he has to accommodate to human language and human ways of thinking in order to communicate. And, and that requires of us a certain caution in how we interpret some of it. Mm. One of the dangers, one of the issues with fundamentalism is it, it tends to read everything as if it's, it's either literal or it's false, right. um, which is going to land you in all sorts of trouble. Whereas uh, the church has always insisted that God accommodated to human ways of thinking. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to understand anything about God. Right. God is transcendent and uh, beyond our comprehension. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think about that we are coming to be ontologically uh, into the image of Christ. So what other tools and particulars do we have it to go by but the languages that we speak? And um, just the, the, the evolution, if you will, to the image of Christ, as we see in Romans 8, 28 through 31, we are soon more fate to his image. So we are, uh, we have obviously been using uh, this this type or kind of language, this marital language for some time now. And um, these, this, this, uh, these calibrated terminologies uh, that we use for, for law and life, family, um, you know, mm -hmm. happiness, mm -hmm. joy, hunger. I mean, these are, mm -hmm. these are terms that are just... And, and they become vehicles for the word of God to speak to us. And so there is real communication from God uh, in human language and conceptual systems, we just need to be alert to the to the fact that God is accommodating to, so that's, that we can understand. That's such a good term, accommodation. You know, and it's interesting. You know, I don't. I'm not slamming on other orthodoxies, of course, because God had me in those other orthodoxies and coming and coming to be. Like I said, so it's not. A, a bad thing. It was his plan. That's what I believe. But I used to make the argument that, um, oh, you see, these are terms that the Babylonians used to say to build a house. God would never use that because this is a supernatural language. So I actually, as a, in a sense, a fundamentalist uh, Calvinist, I would always argue the point that we should be looking for uh, things such as the supervening verb with a language, a meta-language that uh, we have to acclimate to. And um, I, I, I love this accommodation language that uh, God does uh, mm -hmm. reach mm -hmm. down to and to condescend. And I don't mean it in the arrogant sense, but to come down to yeah, um, to our level. That shows mercy and grace and love. Like Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it was... Oh, I think you Calvin on this, but I think it was Calvin that talked about it in terms of community when your kids are like toddlers and you're trying to explain things to them, yeah. and you have to do it in ways that, you know, at the literal level, you know, aren't strictly speaking exactly right, but they'd never understand what you were talking about otherwise. So you have to start <laughs> somewhere. Um, and, and with God, of course, how much more? So is that the case? Mm. You, know, I mean, you, just, you just think about the doctrine of creation. Um, yeah. And we talk about creating things. But, you know, what we when we create things, we take something that's there and we take tools and we shape it. Um, I mean, and it might be language that we shape and, <laughs> or it might be a stone or it might be a piece of wood. And we 
take something and we change it. But God doesn't create like that. God doesn't take, according to the tradition, God creates out of nothing. So God, there isn't some stuff that's there that God shapes. That God doesn't change it. He doesn't have any tools right. <laughs> with which to change it. Um, in, you know, so nothing changes when God creates. So this is not like the kind of creation that we do. It is unique. But language of creation gives us some hook. We need something yes. to go on. And it gives us some hook to have some sense of what we're talking about with God. But as soon as we've got it, we then have to say, but what would it mean for God to create, uh, given who God is? And uh, it would be something very different. Mm. And in the same way, when we talk about God doing things, you know, God, thank you, Lord, for providing this food that we're eating here um, today. And, and an atheist could go, well, what did God do? You know, God didn't. It was the rain and it was the crops and, the, the, you know, there's the genetic biological stuff going on and there's farmers doing stuff and there's people transporting it and somebody else cooked it. But which bit did God do? Um, and, and they're thinking about divine causation, the way God makes things happen, yeah. as if it was the same way that we might make something happen or some right. created cause. And it's not. Mm. And so we get tangled in. We get tangled up. Talking about God is difficult. Mm -hmm. And it's always good to remember that. Oh, so good. You know, and you, you and I had hit on uh, the, 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 the verbal houses of, uh, of, of Hebrew grammar that God's name is actually in the Puel and the Hothpiel and uh, Puel. So we have, uh, you know, these causative verbs that uh, though that I could say I'm handing you the pencil, in reality, the verb says, the, the verb is preceding me, causing me to hand you the pencil. So the, God is still to be praised within uh, the action, but I am the, uh, the the Greek, the doxa. I'm the one who participates uh, in the event. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. And in Genesis 1, you see the same thing. You see God, everything is happening is God doing it, but God commands certain created things to be fruitful or to do things. But then when they are, it says, and God did it. <laughs> right. And over and over again in the Hebrew Bible, you see, um, certain things are the result of actions, people, agents who choose to do things. and uh, But then sometimes it will talk about the same things as God doing them, or it will talk about natural events as natural events caused by created causes. But other times it will talk about those same things without seeing any conflict as uh, God bringing them about. Mm. And, and so, you know, the way we think about causation is, is like a zero-sum game, you know, it's, mm. if... If God did it, then there's, you know, creatures didn't do it. it. wasn't, you know, there's no scientific explanation for it because God did it. And if science can explain it, then God didn't do it. And this is the way we sort of set it up. But this is not the way the Christian tradition thought about how God causes things. Mm. You know, it would be about, I mean, Thomas Aquinas would have been scratching his head at, you know, <laughs> this idea that, well, if science can explain it, it wasn't God. It wouldn't make any sense to him because God is the primary cause of all things. That, right. God is the one who enables created agents to have any causative powers at all from it at each moment. You right, know, right. any way I can make any choices is God is enabling me to be and to be an agent with causative powers that can do things. God's enabling that, mm. and um, you know, but the way God is, the way that God's functioning as the cause is at a different level. I mean, a different metaphysical or ontological level, if you want to use that kind of language. 
Um, and we get in a real muddle if we don't get that. And we talk about God as if God's another item in the world, like yeah. pumpkins and CD cases, you know. I mean, God isn't another thing in the world. God's the creator of the world. Mm-hmm. The prima causa. You know, um, and, and I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I'm writing things down as you speak, and I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, that kind or, or the, the, the genea or the, the phusis um, that, that, that C.S. Lewis talked about in, in his book, a, a Study of Words. And he refers to those things, those kinds, that nature, and he, and he divides them up, but he says they can work together. And, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of the, the kind of tree, of that kind of herb, and that, the, how it yields, what it yields. And, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and it is the, the prima causa. God is the prima causa. He is the verb that be, the aya, you know, if you will, the Hebrew aya, the verb. Um, mm-hmm. We actually find the same word up in, in Armenia. The petroglyphs uh, uh, g- give that away. It's roughly 35,000 BC, if you want to get that far. Uh, but to looking at the verb that causes to be. So, uh, um, and Which I think- was very, very important in the history of Christian theology, where, where the Greek translation of um, Echia, yeah. Asher Echia, was that um, I am the one who is, is, is yeah. I am the one who is, is and so... Being define well it doesn't define you can't define God, but being is of the very essence of who God is, uh-huh. or God's as the, as some people put it, God's nature and God's being are one and the same thing. Yeah, you know, it is God's very nature to be. Yeah, so that's which it. is not like any created thing. That's not true of anything other than God. Very meta. <laughs> very yeah, meta. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and you know, so I'm just. And I won't hit it any further after this, but one, and I'm going backwards a little bit, uh, you know, just again, using those terms, you know, that God would use for, uh, to us, it's like talking to a child who, you know, who's wanting to argue with you and you're, and you're in your fury and you want to, to tell them, you know, how it is, right, how it is, but you have to talk to them on kid level, on and that's the pain, that's the agony, the pathos again that God is doing. He's in terms of the logos that is, He reached down and spoke mm-hmm. as a child to us, and mm-hmm. that to me is a greater dying to self than just being God supreme, you know, and tossing out your verbosity at, mm-hmm. at us. You know? mm-hmm. So I do like that little that that topic and. Uh, and uh, and but one more thing, I'm as as we as you talk, I try to take note. Um, you know, I, I I'm reminded again of the of the Genesis account. There were two different uh, words in Hebrew that the English did account for for creation, uh, the bara out of nothingness, or to make fat out of nothingness, and then again uh, Yitzhak. Uh, after Genesis chapter one verse one, we have the the reforming or the shaping. And um, I don't know if you could make any any note for that for me or say anything. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that. This is the way I read it too, but that's not the mainstream way that Old Testament scholars would read it. Yeah. So they would, because it says it doesn't say in the beginning. Right. It right. says bereshit yeah. in in beginning, and 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 a lot of Old Testament scholars would translate it something like when God began creating the heavens and the earth, it was formless. And, and so they would deny that there's, a, there's an idea of creation out of nothing here. 
I don't think you can demonstrate creation out of nothing from Genesis 1, but I do think Genesis 1 is um, is compatible with creation out of nothing. And I do think yeah. the jury, in terms of linguistic arguments, I think the jury's out and probably will always be out mm-hmm. on how you translate the first three verses, yeah. uh, whether it's in the beginning God created, did it, and then that's the first step when God creates everything, and then the yeah. second step it was all chaotic and watery. and. Yeah. Um, or whether the idea is in Genesis one that God creates is the for, the whole chapter is about His creating, which is the shaping. Um, I, I think those issues can't be resolved on purely linguistic grounds because there's arguments both ways, and so you need to step wider and look at the general thrust of Scripture um, to help decide how you're going to read that text. So I think creation out of nothing is a way of good way of making sense of key things that scripture does say, mm-hmm. but he doesn't strictly speaking teach creation out of nothing. You know, you can't find a verse that says it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are verses that might hint at it and, and, and I mean, where, it, where it comes from is reflecting on biblical teachings that God creates and is not limited by things, mm-hmm. you know, and so creation of nothing is a way of saying God isn't limited by some pre-existent stuff that restricts the kinds of things that God can do with it. Right. Um, and nor is creation something that God had to do, like it was some emanation from God. It was something that God chose to do, and it could have been otherwise. Right. So it, it, creation doesn't have to exist. It's not necessary, and it's not necessary for God to be God yeah. to create the world. Um, but but what that means is that creation then becomes something that God does not for God's own sake, because God doesn't need it. I mean, God does not, God isn't more God by doing it. Creation is purely gratuitous. I mean, it, it's purely a gift for the benefit of creation itself. Right. Well, that's that's nice. So I think anyway. Well, no, I, I think that's that's really what, well, obviously I think that's well said. But uh, yeah, and and if you even the word barashith, if if you look at the the pictographic nature, you see that you know from this beginning we go forth. One could almost say f- from this region or this area, let let us go forth as sentient humankind to understand the narration, the tale the story, the educare, the education. Let's pull you out of darkness this way. So I think there is, uh, that word can imply that, and it, and it can imply a physical creation. I'm not saying it's not, but it can also be geographical. So it can apply what? It can be, a, a, I think it can be applicable to physical creation, but I think it's also, I, I think it has to do with the, the sentient Man, that from here let we go forward. This is the the arch. This is the arche from where we begin and we go we go forward. Um, mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. also believe it could be geographical too. And I, I have a whole thesis on this where that uh, very well that we'll have a, a palindrome of sorts where we begin at the Siberian plains or the Rosh plains, if you will, and we we go forward. And we come back and in there at Gog and Magog, possibly, uh, in the eschatological sense of war at Armageddon. Um, okay, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I'd been have thinking to think about more it. about it to know what I even think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, no, no. So I, I think it can be hitting on you know m- more than one thing, and I think that's uh, uh, you know th- that's the richness of of 
this, again, this meta language that it can talk to the babies, it can talk to the, the archaeologists, it can talk to the linguists, it can talk to the historians, it can talk to the theologians all at once. I mean, this is such a rich thing, you know, and mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, th- that's what I'm getting out of it, you know, with, with all this. But uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm still recording here. Um, well, okay, so talk to me, and thank you for that. That's I'm enlightened every time I talk to you, uh, Robin. Um, talk to me a little bit, if you would, about what you said on one of your um, YouTube. Uh, it was a lecture you did. It was put on YouTube about the thrust that took you over, that general consensus thrust that allowed for you to, to be a free thinker because it's – I've been saying the same thing, I, you know. I'm now free. I'm not going to be condemned to hell if I have one idea that could be wrong. If I'm wrong, so be it. I mean, how many people have been wrong in the first through the 21st century? They were great theologians, you know? Well, I think everybody, right? I mean, we've all been wrong and and are inevitably still wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. So if, if we're condemned to hell for being wrong, we're stuffed, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, all of us. Uh and, and and anyone who's ever changed their mind about anything in theology would have to recognize that they were wrong or they think they were wrong. And now, and, and, and unless they think they're never going to change their mind about anything again, they've got to concede that they're probably wrong about a bunch of stuff now. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so being wrong is okay. You know, I mean, seeking, seeking, pursuing truth is what we do, is what we try and do. And... And there's always it, there's always the risk of going wrong there. But if you don't look, you're never going to find it. So you're definitely going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I like how you said it too, because it's it's not arrogating the thinker, but it's saying when you said my theology, you know, obviously what we know that there's only one ology of God, one pure classification, one ology, one logos. One class of fire, that's God. But I liked how you said my theology because that opens you up for for being checkmated. It opens you up to be corrected. And in your theology, you're allowed to think and to be free. And that was, it hit me so hard when you said that. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, when I saw your video, I, I called my wife down and I said, look, I'll never force you to, you to do anything in life except watch Robin Perry. <laughs> you got to watch this. It's an hour. Uh, I'm not even sure which one it was, but okay, that's very kind. It was um, like an hour and 40 minutes. It took about an hour right, and 40 minutes. Right. Everything's an hour. Yeah, minutes. yeah. Well, and, and you know, I mean, what you say about, I mean, this ties in with the creation thing, because, of course, there is the logos, the divine logos, and the divine logos is the one through whom God creates and shapes and structures the whole cosmos. And so that's a key theme in the New Testament, that all things are made through him, through Christ. Um, but, and, and or, or in terms of the Old Testament stuff, um, Chochmah or Sophia, yeah. uh, the wisdom of God through whom God creates. <laughs> and creation is infu- in, in Old Testament thinking, creation is infused uh, with God's wisdom. And what... What we do is we wisdom calls out to people to seek her 
and we are to pursue wisdom and to seek it. And wisdom sometimes hides, but really is willing to yield itself up mm-hmm. um, for those who seek uh, rightly and who pay attention, listen to wisdom, which is revealed in the cosmos and in the you know Isaiah twenty eight. I think it is talks about how farmers um, learn. Uh, oh, I can't remember quite what they talk about, but the, God teaches the farmers how best to deal with the soil and how to grow crops and all this. And this is wisdom they've learned from God because uh, just by being farmers and paying attention to the cosmos and learning to live in tune with the cosmos, mm. which is, which and and so in Christian thought, which was really riffing off Stoic ideas, but resonating deeply with biblical ones, is this idea that. Uh, the structures of the cosmos are shaped by logos or by reason, but human minds are created to be attuned to that and to detect it. Mm. So, so there is—it's not a coincidence that our reason connects and sees patterns in the world, like physicists do, or all of us do, or farmers do, or anybody does. I mean, this is the way that we've been created, so that there is a connection in creation between our reason and the structures of the cosmos, which are really uh, there and mediating the, the the divine logos, the divine reason or word, or uh, Sophia, wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is there, the way, the way that relates to what you were saying is that uh, there is the one logos, uh, but we are those who pursue. We have reason and we have the capacity to understand, but we are to pursue Logos or pursue reason, uh, pursue wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, which begins with the fear of the Lord. And, so, um, and that means we have to be willing to change our minds and, and, and learn and make mistakes. It's a very long winded way of saying it's okay to be wrong. <laughs> well, I think that uh, God's words are loaded and, <laughs> and they're pregnant for sure. <laughs> so, in terms of the issue of th- what, what I meant by when I talk about the thrust of um, a scripture is, I suppose, you know, I have always sought to read scripture by trying to pay attention to the parts and make sense of them, um, but also to the whole and to make sense of the parts in the light of the whole and to make sense of the whole in the light of the parts. So you're constantly going backwards and forwards. Yeah. Does this way, does this big picture make sense of this particular text or am I trying to coerce it to sort of fit? Um, but you know, does this text really make sense if I'm reading it in the light of what I see elsewhere? So script, interpreting scripture by scripture is a, is an ancient and noble Christian endeavor, and I've always tried to do that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose increasingly, although I look right back to when I was an undergraduate, and I my dissertation was on something to do with men and relations between men and women, and it seems such a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. But the whole issue for me wasn't just about let's find a proof text here or there. It was all about how do you tell the big biblical meta narrative story in a way that makes sense as a way of approaching this particular issue or any issue. And I've always, I just instinctively did that not long after becoming a Christian. And I have always instinctively done that. So the way I approached the issue of salvation and universal salvation was obviously by paying attention to all the texts, but not just texts about hell, which is where the debates seem to get stuck, mm-hmm. seem to me. It's just like, well, let's talk about hell. Well, here's a verse that settles the discussion. Right. And I think you can never settle the discussion with a verse. <laughs> <laughs> right. You always have to look at the whole thing. And and it's not just verses about hell, because every 
hellology implies a theology, right? So everything you say, every doctrine of hell is saying something about God as well. I mean, what does God have to be like for that doctrine of hell to be true? So you need to be looking constantly at the big picture. What does scripture say about God? What is God like? How does God act? What's the thrust of the story from creation to new creation? And 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 how do we best make sense of a doctrine of hell and salvation within that bigger picture? So I increasingly felt like when I looked at all of the these elements of the story, it looked like they're all aiming towards this universal uh, redemption where God brings creation to the purpose for which he made it. Um, and the doctrine of hell, I just couldn't get it to fit that. And I was already perceiving this problem long before I was a universalist. Mm. Um, in fact, I gave up writing an article once uh, on, it was meant to be, this was when Tom Wright wasn't very well known before him. Um, oh, yeah. And I just wanted to sort of explain his ideas in a popular form to people. And I couldn't get them to work. And I gave up the article because I couldn't make hell fit into the theology. I'm sure Tom Wright would disagree with me, but it didn't seem to make sense. So I gave up and um, came back to it years later. And uh, and anyway, so the, the, the point is, if you look at the story that runs from creation, where God creates things for a purpose and with a destiny you know human beings just take human beings forget the rest of the cosmos for the sake of this point yeah. just take human beings uh human beings are created in the image of god you know they're not created as rubbish things they're created with a purpose and a destiny uh, uh they are to image god in creation and this is a positive and a noble thing being in hell forever suffering torment isn't the culmination of being the image of God, it's something else. If anything, it is its negation. It's saying mm -hmm. that failed. You can't be the thing you were created to be. Yeah. And so it seemed to me that from the very beginning, you've got creation that's aiming at something and the doctrine of sin, you know, sin, the story of sin knocks it all off course, but redemption is all about God getting it back on course. Mm. And so the issue then is, does God succeed in getting it back on course or not? And, and, the doc, and a doctrine of hell where hell is eternal, the, the eternal destiny for certain creatures is, in effect, a theology in which God's purposes for creation are forever foiled. Mm -hmm. For the whole, not just those parts of creation, but for the whole creation, because God's purposes for creation had a place for those parts in the functioning cosmos at the end and if they are excluded from that god's purposes for the entire creation are diminished and god's purposes for those parts of creation are utterly thwarted yeah. and that's not the death that's not the end you're expecting right that's not so all the way through you're thinking so what's the appropriate end for this story you know so take the death and resurrection of jesus you know and and he dies for you know to take away the sin of the world you know what, did it work <laughs> or not? It boils down to that, really. Um, and when, you know, God is all in all, yeah. when, you know, and the victory of God, God is not, God, so let's take, this is the way Gregory of Nyssa read that passage. Mm. Um, he would read 1 Corinthians 15, 28, and he's following Origen here, and he says, what does it mean for God to be all in something, in a creature? 
Well, God is all in that creature. God is not all in a creature when that creature is in rebellion or sin. Mm. Um, God is only all in a creature when that creature has submitted to God and is filled with God, uh, infused with God, and has become what God meant it to be. Then God is all in that creature. And God is only all in all. That is to say, God is all in all creatures. When all creatures are in that state, anything short of that is not God being all in all. Um, And I think that's right. (laughs) So it seemed to me that traditional theologies of hell just didn't make sense. They felt like um, a cuckoo in the nest, you know, something that's mimicking the child. (laughs) But that doesn't really fit. You know, it's trying to... It is like an alien presence that that seems discordant with the story. So you've got a story that's raising all sorts of expectations. That ending doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing I mean. That's what I meant when I talked about the thrust. Um, but of course, Scripture does teach judgment, and it does teach right. consequences uh, for sin in terms of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and so on. So I'm not for a minute suggesting that that's not part of the story that Scripture tells. What I'm saying is if that is the end of the story, it doesn't make sense. Right. So I have tried to recover um, for myself stuff, teachings that you find in the early church in which that's the penultimate fate. Of certain creatures, it's the way. I, I mean, this is the way I think about it. Um, and this is this is not a biblical text as such. This is me sort of stepping back and trying to figure out how stuff fits together. I mean, I te- I I wonder, and I'm inclined to the view that um, you know, in the new in in the judgment and in the post mortem life, we will be confronted with the reality of God's presence, which is like a bright light and a fire. And depending on our spiritual condition, we will experience that in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody who has been transformed into the image of Christ, that presence is life. For somebody who is in rebellion against God, that presence is torture. I mean, it's, it's, exposes everything in you that's wrong, that you're grasping onto, that you think is essential to your identity. Um, And the very same presence of God is felt as torment. For other people who are in the process of being changed, it might be, it might feel more, I mean, to use, uh, you didn't didn't take a doctrine of purgatory, but it would feel purgatorial. Mm -hmm. It would feel painful, but transformative. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think what's changing is us changing in our relationship to God. Mm. And I think people do experience the presence of God as hell, especially when God stops shielding us right. and so that we can delude ourselves um, about what what's really good and bad in life. And when God unveils his presence in a more unmediated way, uh, we are confronted with ourselves in, in ways that will be quite painful. Mm-hmm. But not the end of the story because, right. you know, God doesn't give up <laughs> or fail, yeah. you know. 
I mean, this is a thing about, sorry, I'm waffling now, but no. the thing about um, that I always found and still find difficult, this idea that people say, but at the moment of death, you've got no more opportunities. I mean, maybe you're five when you die, or maybe you're 95 or whatever, but up until that point, you can turn and change and choose God, but after that point, you can't. What, or even if you do, tough luck. Nothing, you know, you could, if you tried repenting after that, no, nope, no. Nope. You know, if you threw yourself on God's mercy and no, nope, nothing, you know, you've, in a sense, God's taken away your right to, to freedom then. You know, it's all, oh, no, God respects our freedom and we have all this freedom before. Oh, but after this point, even if you're five, tough luck, you know, no freedom now, you can't choose anymore. Yeah. Um it did, and I just can't see any log. What's the what's the rationale for that? What's the logic? Yeah. I don't think scripture teaches it. I mean, I do think the scripture teaches that we die, and we're judged. Okay, yes, uh, I'm not denying that for a minute. But uh, the idea that death is the point of which your fate is eternally sealed. Where's that? Where's that come from? You certainly um, that certainly wasn't any teaching you find in the early church. At least not until a bit later. So you know, we find um, numerous texts where people are praying for those, even in the Lake of Fire. Uh, in the second and third century, there are various um, texts in proto-Orthodox Christian writings in which Jesus invites people to pray for those who are in the lake that they could come out. And this wasn't considered obviously stupid or obviously false. Uh, in the way that it just seems instinctive to a lot of Christians now that death is a point of no return. Yeah. And it's obvious, and it's not even up for discussion. But where does it come from? And it doesn't even make sense. Once you think about it, it doesn't yeah, it, make it, sense. It, it, it comes out of dualism from Persia. I mean, that, that's a whole new argument or an, another for another time, but <clears throat> now you're dealing with two superheroes who's going to win. And you end up with an eternal conflict between light and dark. Yeah. And you end up with um, a doctrine of hell where evil is perpetuated for infinity mm -hmm. or for eternity. Yeah. And, and you might say, well, it's not evil because God's, God's punishing it with exact proportionate punishments to balance it out. You know, So what you have is evil defeated and justice done for eternity. But what you've also got is creatures who are rebelling against God for eternity and God's perpetuating that condition. God is keeping rebellion in creation forever. What's that about? Yeah. What what possible possible purpose would that serve? You know, at least with annihilationism, which I think is also mistaken, but at least with annihilationism you don't have that ridiculous scenario. So some people think, well human beings are infinite creatures and God can't cause them to cease to exist. So he has to send them to hell forever, but it has to be forever. As if, you know, God's got no choice about this, which is absurd. Um, or uh, they go, well, no, God would only give you like a finite punishment for your sin. But when he does it, you get really cross with him and rebel a bit more. So he punishes you for that. And then you rebel a bit more. So he punishes you for that. Yeah. So God is actually perpetuating sin for eternity. Retributive, yeah. Back and Which doesn't end, like, what's the point? Apart from it, what's the point? How is that consistent with what God's purposes are as declared in Scripture? Well, hence the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, so you end up with, you end up with a, 
a doctrine of an infinite duality of good and evil, rather than one in which evil is vanquished. Mm -hmm. I mean, like actually eradicated from creation. I think I did a talk once, maybe it's the one you're talking about, where I talked about um, eternal torment, annihilation and universalism using the metaphor of uh, an eternal torture chamber or something. Mm. Uh, so like a prison. So that was like a prison. Um, annihilation is like a guillotine. So you're just caused to cease to exist. And universalism is like a hospital where... Uh, <laughs> So, so the sickness is eradicated by healing you, hmm. um, and sin is eradicated by healing and transforming sinners, so they're no longer sinners. And yeah. because, because evil is a corruption of God's good creation, um, God gets rid of it by healing it, right? And so this is how we talk about the triumph of Christ. You know, on on traditional theologies, we go, "Ah, oh, Christ's undone all that sin's done," but He hasn't. Sins caused massive devastation. And if Christ only gets a few people saved, then Christ has only undone a part of what sin did. Mm. You know, so Adam brings devastation and the second Adam undoes a part of it. That's, that's a bit weak, isn't it? It's a bit limp. Uh, whereas, you know, Paul has it, whatever sin does, whatever Adam's done, Christ undoes all of it. That's right. So, you know, I think... A doctrine of Christ's victory and, and eradication of evil and the triumph of the cross and resurrection um, in which it actually does bring about the goal for which it was was done is much more um, resonant with a biblical theology of God. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Very good. And, and the danger is, of course, you end up by in our desperation to hold on to a doctrine of hell. Um, and, and sometimes for very good reasons. We think it's taught in Scripture. And so, you know, we feel like we don't understand it, but we have to maintain it. I don't think it's taught in Scripture. But for someone who does, I can respect that. The danger is, though, it ends up screwing up your doctrine of God. And there's all sorts of ways it can do that. So you might go, well, God didn't actually want to save anyone, everyone anyway. You know, he wanted to save some people, but he created the others to display the glory of his justice by punishing them forever. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a sort of Jonathan Edwards kind of. So God created all creatures to display his glory, and some of them he created to show um, wrath, which is in his justice, and some of them he created to show uh, yeah. his love. But he doesn't actually love them all. He doesn't want to save them all. So he is victorious. But you end up with a doctrine of God where God is not love mm. essentially you know there's all sorts of god could be or you say well god is love it's interesting john calvin doesn't mention love once. one john 4 8 and 16 yeah, you know well, god is love once. anywhere in, in the institution is thousands of bible references isn't that crazy it's nuts right <laughs> because because love is the essence of, of who god is and of course god doesn't need to create the world to be love because of the trinity Absolutely. the father and the son and the holy spirit love um yeah. and god is love even if god doesn't create which is what my calvinist friends tell me but it doesn't follow from that that if god does choose to create god could choose to just hate everything or you know god god's choices are not utterly arbitrary. They are expressions of who God is in God's very being. Right. And um, creation is an act of love. Yes. God creates things and loves the things that God has created. 
if God hated them and wanted to destroy them all, uh, then it doesn't. Then you have to think: What am I saying about God being love? It doesn't make sense. It's not. So you end up with a doctrine of God in which He's not actually good or not actually loving or something. And I think often you're rescued by being inconsistent. So you go, well, God is love and he does love everyone and he does want to save everyone and he gets his will done all the time, but he doesn't save everyone. And this doesn't make sense. But so, but you just go, I don't understand it, but I believe it all. And then you're saved by being inconsistent there. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't want <laughs> you, yeah your theology doesn't make sense, but make sense. at least at least you have the benefit of not being <laughs> rational. <laughs> And if you're a universalist, well, <laughs> you can go with that too. But that's not well, universalism. Yeah, you see, you, yeah. So for me, people go, uh, why, why, um, you know, what? Why would you want to be unorthodox, or why would you want to be heterodox? Well, precisely not that. Apart from the fact that it's not heresy, and apart from the fact that lots of orthodox people have held it, even though it's been a minority position in the history of the church. I am a universalist precisely so that I can be orthodox because it enables me to be consistently orthodox. It enables me to say all the things that are in the creed yes. uh, and not end up contradicting myself. Hence the word, orthodoxy, <laughs> straight theology. <Right>. <laughs> so I can also worship, well, I mean, I can also worship, right? <laughs> because what I do, and I think I mentioned in the beginning of the book I wrote that it affected the way I worshipped when I thought that God could save everyone but chose not to. I, you know, I, it's, it becomes, or you think God's going to be torturing someone I love forever and ever and ever. It becomes increasingly hard to worship God. I mean, you can do it as an act of obedience, but not as an act of affection. I mean, you know, you're not, your heart's not in it, as it were. Whereas I found being a universalist enables me to worship Mm -hmm. uh, with more integrity. I love that. You know, I, there's so many points I've already written down. I don't even know where I'm at at this point after hearing you talk. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this so I can get it out of my, my head, and then I'd like to hit something else. But it seems to me that, that though if there be any will whatsoever of, of humankind, it would have to be the supervening will of God to ordain you into salvation. So in that sense, all things are working together for God's glory to bring us back to, to him and his fold. That, that makes sense. So in that sense, and I, I am not a Calvinist anymore, and of course I, I've used that before as a Calvinist, not thinking about universalism, but um, in that sense, God's will simply extends to all. And... Um, and I, I, we were discussing again. I love the term hellology. I'm probably going to get a T-shirt with that with that name on it now. <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, you hit the word uh, the the wrath of God, the orge of God. Well, we have all received the wrath of God. If you've ever had a speeding ticket, that's the wrath of God in Romans chapter 13. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've experienced the wrath of God through the, the justice right. system. And handing you over to uh, the the consequences of your chosen course, yeah. as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. And in fact, that's a very 
I've often had in mind to sort of look at this more carefully. There's a very strong thread through the Old Testament in which God, especially in the Psalms but and, and wisdom literature, but elsewhere, where God, where the punishment for sin is God letting you experience the consequences of your own stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only thing scripture, that's the only kind of language scripture uses, but it's a lot, lot more dominant or a lot more prominence than yeah. people realize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of uh, the, the Germanic word for hell, holen. It means a dark hole, a place of darkness. And education, ado, a, to come out of, ducare, darkness. One is coming out of darkness into the light uh, when, when one is walking close with the Logos, with the Word of God. So I, I, mm. I think of these terms as, as a linguist, a philologist, uh, where I'm going, God has ordained these languages to express himself as God would be expressed by the rocks themselves if people did not cry out, Hosanna. I think that the languages themselves, they cry out, you know, his name, his authority. Um, but in, in the last thing, and I'll, I'll let you keep on going, I want you to maybe add on to this, you know, Again, th this concept of meta language, you know, we have a language when we say hate, it's reactionary. You know, I, if I hate him, it's because he did some that's retributive hate and, you know, let me throw the rock yeah, back at you. Yeah, but yeah. but the, the, the missio in the Greek that God uses to say, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, it mean, meant to dismiss for a time, like in a narration or a dramatic play. I'm not using you all as the key actors in the play to exhibit the, the, the line uh, that leads to the Messiah. But God did say, I will sit my throne amongst you, Edom, you know, in the last days, you know, and that's, that was in the prophets. So, I mean, it's like in the last days, God is going to establish his throne with the sons and daughters of Esau. And where's that text? That I, is in Jeremiah, and I, I, I'm only thinking out of my head right now, but I'll... Yeah, look it up. It is, it, God says, I will establish my throne amongst mm -hmm. Edom. So it, he literally is telling them that he will be their God. Um, yeah. Yes, and, yes. and I, I think one of the really key things for... Um, making sense of a lot of biblical texts is realizing how the language is working and how it isn't working. Mm -hmm. And and hate language is, is one example of that. You know, I mean, Jesus says, unless you come to me and hate your mother and father, you know, I mean, what? What? What does he want us to do? Well, it's fancy to dismiss them, um, you know, put them aside, yeah. out of the classroom. And, and understanding idioms, um, it goes a long way to helping people make sense of that. But again, if you're a fundamentalist and take everything literally, uh, you get in a real tangle. But you see quite often in the prophets language, which is very, um, you know, I will just, I, uh, this is off the top of my head, but you know, I could, I could find examples later, but they say things like, I will destroy the city forever. It will be, you know, eradicated, blah, blah. Um, and then I will restore it, you know, or, or you know, I restore the fortunes. And you think, what? You just destroyed it without a trace. What's going on? You know, but it's what I call the rhetoric of wrath. Right. Sometimes, you know, the, the, there's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of, you know, it, it's it's deliberate um, 
performative language, which is to solicit a response, a particular kind of response. It's like, stop behaving like this. Behave like it, it's like here's the threat, but it's used in very, you get very strong language. Like there's nothing left, nothing left, and then there is. Um, and so you have to be. This teaches us, I think, to be cautious. Um, again, you know, as we interpret some of these texts, I think, well, you know, how how straightforwardly should I take this? Or is this an idiom? Or is this, you know, what kind of prophetic speech is this? And how do I read this alongside other oracles by the very same prophet? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or other prophets uh, and so on. I, I wanted to, I don't want to interrupt you, but it was in, uh, in Jeremiah 49, verse 38, and concerning him... Uh, God establishing his throne, I believe. Um, and I will set my throne in Elam and destroy from there the king and the princess, says Yahweh. So he's going to establish in Elam. And there's, and there's another passage I'm looking looking for uh, in terms of, of Edom as well. But for sure, they were not the uh, Israelites. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So he will... Um... And this is part of his judgment on them. He's going to destroy their kings and officials and set his own throne there. But then he says in the next verse, but in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so where's, yeah. where's the hate in, in that? So anyway, I'm just saying there is an example of uh, in the final uh, enactment, the teleos, uh, we, we do find a, a final restoration with God on his throne amongst them. Yeah, and and actually, I mean, this text, this oracle, is it gives an example of what I was talking about. So if you look, um, he says, "I will terrify Elam before their enemies." This is verse thirty-seven, and before those who seek their life, I'll bring disaster on them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, and after that, he will restore their fortunes. You know, so you've got you think. He's consumed them. <laughs> uh, but then there's restoration, just as Jeremiah speaks about restoring the fortunes of Sodom. Yeah. How about Israel? You know, which is an astonishing image. Right? Oh, no, it's Ezekiel. Sorry, Ezekiel. Yeah. Um, restore the fortunes of Sodom, you think? Well, which is the archetypal image from which hell, all those hell images derive ultimately from, from that Sodom and Gomorrah story. Yeah. You know, it's the, the the type, as it were, of eternal destruction. And yet, God will restore their fortunes, you know. I mean, how Ezekiel envisaged that happening, goodness only knows. Um, <coughs> but that's, that's God, you see. That's what resurrection is about. Resurrection is that the story doesn't end with the death. Mm-hmm. The story doesn't end with death, it ends with resurrection. Yeah. And if... if and and again, that's my worry about a, a doctrine of eternal hell, where that is, well, actually, no, the story does end in eternal death for maybe a lot, maybe most people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then, in that case, it's not the gospel. It's not the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is determining the shape of the future. If that is the case, the resurrection is not a proleptic foretaste of the shape of things to come. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And history is being determined by sin, not by the resurrection of Christ. And so I think this is why I describe my universalism as evangelical. I mean, I'm, I somewhat wince at the term because of some of the associations it has. 
Um, but I'm not going to have it taken off me. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, just because of certain things of certain sections of evangelicalism that behave in ways that make me wince. Well, it, the, one I, of the biggest things, if I can interrupt just for one second, is that it's so confused with, with fatalism, which I've taught lectures on what fatalism means, uh-huh. with, without responsibility. It's the exact opposite. If we are ordained to, to, come at, to become as Christ, as Romans yeah. 8, you know, verse 29 again through 31, we are coming to be in his likeness, and sin is nothing more than the canister that holds the fuel to drive us there. I mean, even sin itself is is a an ordained yeah. mist. Yeah, yeah. God will get his mileage out of anything, and will turn um, turn um, sin or like Pharaoh. I mean, God will use Pharaoh's sin for his purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, and so God, uh, God is amazing like that. Um, so, yeah, I can't remember what I said. What was I saying about? I have no idea. I can't <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, there is a, so, so a doctrine of eternal hell is saying that it's sin that determines the shape, the ultimate shape of the future for at least a significant part of creation. And I just think that's not evangelical, right? Yeah. Evangelical means that the gospel determines the shape of the future yeah. because yeah. the evangel is the gospel, of course. Yeah. So I am, um, I think a picture of ultimate reconciliation arises from reflection on the gospel and that the revelation of the future of his, so it's not just me thinking, hey, isn't God nice? This is what people tell me quite often. Uh Yeah, you just think God's nice, but God's not nice. He's just, you know, as if, oh my goodness, I'd never thought of that. Oh, God's just gracious. Thanks for telling me. I hate the word nice Um, anyway. It means to be stupid. I don't know if you do that. The origin is no science, naiskios. And even Shakespeare alluded to somebody is always pleasant and agreeable with you for, say, 25 years. There's something wrong with them. Uh, and the idea is they have a knife waiting to put in your back because they're acting. Yes. So God isn't nice. Of course God's not nice. Um, and that's not my my point is that it's not me telling people what the future, me using human wisdom to say, this is the future, it's going to be universal reconciliation, it's not going to be what scripture reveals, you see. So it's, so I'm told, it's, you're not submitting to revelation, you're just using your own wisdom. Um, the revelation that determines that where God reveals the shape of the future is the resurrection of Christ. Christ represents humanity, and in his resurrection, that is the basis for Christian understanding of what the age to come is like uh, his resurrection, and that is the revelation of the future. Any any eschatological thinking that doesn't come out of that has got something else at work in it. Yes. Um, and so, any understanding. So again, I'm not. I emphasise. I'm not rejecting what Scripture says about eschatological punishment because it does teach about that, yeah. and that has to be taken very seriously. The point is, how are you going to understand that? Well, if for, for, I would say this for, for me that that is already being done, and in one sense we are in the the thousands melu Kelly the, the the duet of thousand uh, year reign. We are in the this judgment of sort right now. I know that the Holy Spirit does baptize us with fire, bapto uh, in you know in within without. So yeah, well, no, I think that's, and I think you could make a case for that from John's Gospel as well, where it talks about those who do not believe have been condemned already. 
Yes. So we're, we, and this is the this is the final condemnation, you know, the eschatological yes. condemnation, which we in we're, when we're locked in sin, we're already in a sort of foretaste way participating in that final condemnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as when we are united to Christ, even now we're already participating in the life of of the age to come, mm-hmm. in a sort of foretaste kind of way. So I think the the judgment we experience now is not something utterly distinct from the judgment to come. It's a sort of precursor. It's a foretaste. It's the same thing in advanced version. <laughs> I don't know sure. quite how you put it, but something like that. <laughs> well, and here's a it might be one of the last questions that I give you here. Uh, you know, how much do you believe? And I I do believe that that, that Revelation. Uh, is also uh, an answerable. Um, I don't know how to say this. It it took this the, the temple service and expanded that to us and to God, and in some way that that's a, a almost a beautiful poem. Um, You're talking about the Book of Revelation. The here. Book of Revelation, the, the last book in the Bible. I think right. in some ways that that it. Uh, it runs parallel with the, the studying the temple and the temple services. Yes, I mean, I know Margaret Barker has argued something like this. Um, I I haven't read her book, um, so I I couldn't comment on that in detail. I mean, it's 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 certainly quite plausible that there'd be a lot of truth in that. There's certainly the temple and uh, temple-like themes crop up through the whole of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And, and and actually, I am a very great believer on the significance and centrality of temple theology for understanding New Testament. I am too. Theology. I am too. Um, so, and, you know, even even son of man language, I am inclined, following Crispin Fletcher Louis, to think that this is uh, son of man in Daniel seven. Well, one like a son of man in Daniel seven is like a high priest mm-hmm. coming on the Day of Atonement in clouds before the Ancient of Days, like the clouds of incense, uh, coming uh, into the, before the Ancient of Days. Obviously, there's a lot of Genesis, sort of Adam mm-hmm. stuff going on here uh, with the Son of Man and the dominion over the animals with the beast kingdoms and so on. But um, it makes a lot of sense to me to see, and, and, and I think there's a lot of things going on with the Son of Man imagery, but I think one of them could well be this temple thing and a high priest mm-hmm. thing. And Jesus, Jesus's messianic role is not simply Davidic. I think there's a high priestly element to that, too. Not just in Hebrews. I suspect in the Gospels, too. Um, certainly in Hebrews, yes. You know, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is not a Levitical priest. It's a Davidic priest. Yeah. Uh, you know, so he is a king. He's Davidic, but he's functioning as this eternal priest. And Abraham even gave him sacrifice, honored him. And Abraham was, of course, right. right. So who, who is which, which, which Hebrews makes a big deal about. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh, it shows the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. And, you know, Melchizedek is a type of... Uh, Christ, so, you know, the Son of God, who lives forever. So I'm kind of I'm I'm taking all these particulars and you know and, and all the universals you're throwing at me, and I and I'm I'm thinking about you know the kingdom of God is 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 here and now if we're speaking 
the logo. So if we're speaking, and I, and I and I years ago I looked up the word kingdom of God as a phrase, basilio totheo, and the root word for basis kingdom was foot. It meant little footers, those who walk <laughs> the kingdom of God. Hence the word basis podos foot. And so the, the feeders, the footers, the little feeders of God. And I, I think it's a very endearing term. But also the Pharisees took that term on, that concept that they were the mouths of God. So when they brought forth that they brought the kingdom of God through their mouth, we have the Kohan, the priest, and then Baal. So cannibal. <laughs> Hence we have this word, those who consume those who, and, and God, back in Hosea chapter 2, I want to say it's verse 14, uh, it was Jesus. And this is like 650 BC, something like that. It had to have been Christ, because he says, there'll come a time when you will no longer call me Baal, which is the God, the owner of chattel, the owner of women, the owner of things, um, and the, that person, that being that does retributive justice, but you shall call me Ishi, which meant the kind husband, the, the restorative husband, the one who brings in. And I, I love, the, the, again, the, the, the prophetical nature of, of the Christ who literally will, told Israel that you will call me Ishi. That's the root for Yeshua, by the way, but it's just Ishi, it means the husband. And of course, it and the cheaper the English it says fa, uh, husband, but if you look at the roots, ishi. I think King James, I believe, it's in large letters, ishi. Well, if you look, all right. Okay, I don't have one to hand. It's okay. No, it doesn't matter. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Hosea again is a case in point of where you've got judgment and so on, and then restoration. Yes. And, and there's just a recurring, recurring theme throughout the Old Testament in God's relation with Israel and the New Testament. But ultimately underpinning it all is God's covenant commitment mm. that God will not, under any circumstances, allow this thing to, to end in failure, this relationship to end in failure, no matter what yes. ups and downs along the way. And Romans 9 to 11 really sort of picks that up and develops it in mm. new covenant kind of ways. But underpinning it, Paul says God's gifts and calling are irrevocable or irrevocable, depending on how one thinks that should be pronounced. And, uh, you know, so all Israel will be saved because if they're not, then God can't have been faithful to the covenant. So it might be that there is a hardening in part and it might be that there is uh, a, a breaking and a, a, a rejection, but it's not a rejection from the covenant, it's a rejection within the covenant. Oh, and you yeah. don't, and it's not a falling from grace as such, it's falling within grace. Um, it expresses the marriage. It's a, it's a calibrated term. It expresses the terms of marriage that a man can or a woman can throw a book at my head. My wife can get, she's Italian. She's going to throw some yeah, words yeah, at me. Yeah. And it even, and, and it even in the marriage metaphor in the old Testament, well, at times I can't think of the text off my head, but I know they're there. God says, I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> <laughs> write a certificate of divorce. And, yeah. But he doesn't go, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah, he, right. and, and it's quite clear that he won't, he won't do that. He threatens it because he's it's expressing their behavior and how yeah. frustrated he is and so on, you know, but he will not do it. 
he will not abandon Israel. And that's, you know, and it's in the end, our feet, this is the thing that gives me greatest hope because things can be pretty miserable sometimes. Uh, it is the fact that our future is not in our hands, it's in the hands of God. Well, that's sovereignty right there. <laughs> yeah, if it was down to me, I would be permanently stressed. Yeah. Be and, and I think we'd, we'd most of us would full flat and fail. Yeah. It's not down to me, it's down to the one. Who, it's not, so hit, I love the uh, icon of the resurrection in the Orthodox tradition, which shows Christ in Hades, uh, smashing the gates of Hades beneath his feet, and he's lifting up Adam and Eve from death, and they represent humanity. So he's lifting them up, and underneath his feet, you can see all the smashed locks of the gates, and yeah. you can see death defeated, bound up in chains, and Christ is lifting up humanity, but he's lifting them by their wrists. So they can't even hold on to him. It's all down to yeah. him holding on to them. And, and the future is... And we have hope and our future secure because it's down to how well God can hold on to us in Christ, not how well we can hold on to God. I, I love it. I love that. And, and very interesting, uh, I, just to, to, to note this, and uh, Dr. Jeffrey Benner's work, uh, the Hebrew lexicon, uh, he went back to the, the proto-Sinatic uh, pictograms of Hebrew, where it, it really does expound on, his work expounds on, that we're looking at words versus letters. And the oldest pictogram in Hebrew, proto-Sinatic Hebrew, for Satan, and the only time that uh, is accounted for a character in Hebrew looking at oneself as to, look, as to say, look what I did, is the word halil, and that's the name for Satan. And it's a picture of a man looking at his hand looking at his work. So it's a hay sign, yod, and then two lamids for the, the shepherd staffs to work with. And so we have a picture of, look at what I've done. That's the first word for uh, Satan. Um, <clears throat> very interesting work. Uh, J Jeffrey Benner. Everybody should get that book, by the way. I'm not plugging it. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, maybe not everybody. I mean, <laughs> I'm just, well, everybody should. Not, <laughs> not everybody's into words. But it's just uh, so interesting how that, once again, these little mm -hmm. particulars just fall in to kind of support um, mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. an idea of, uh, it's not about look at me, look what I've done. That's... That's uh, rejecting God's verb that rushes upon us, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's, uh, that's for another story, another time. But, uh, well, sir, I just want to say thank you, uh, Robin, for, for taking the time with me um, and for the people that will be listening to this. Um, I try not to, 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 uh, to speak too much whenever you're talking, but I can't help it. I get too inspired. So uh, but forgive me if I jumped in there <laughs> too much. But uh, I really did enjoy you. No, thanks very much for having me. It was uh, fun. It was a fun conversation. Oh, absolutely. I, I enjoyed our first one. That was a blast too. Yeah. I can't even remember what we talked about, but it did have stuff about words in it. I remember that. Words, tabla. Well, you were interested. Oh, in drumming. Yes, that's right. <laughs> drumming. Well, that was interesting too that you uh, you you, had, you were interested in taking tabla. You had no idea that I played tabla. No, I didn't. No, I just did. I see them behind you. I just, I mean, so I have tabla drums, and I've oh, been yeah. doing, yeah, I've been doing tabla, um, but I don't. It's just me because 
I don't know. I can't play with anyone. Well, I teach it. I can't even. I can't even tune the things. I tell you what I'll do. I, every time, if I teach you for a month, would you come back for free? I'll teach you for free if you if you come back. <laughs> okay. Sounds like sounds good. Yeah. Okay. 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 We can yeah. do that. We'll do it. We'll learn from the master. Yeah. No. I, well, I'm definitely not that when it comes to tableau, but. No. Uh, I'm very uh, appreciative of your mastery of of, uh, of you know your work, what you've done, and I do do appreciate the God that uh, created you. How about that? Um, yeah, yeah, great. But uh, well, Robin, sir, thank you so much. And uh, what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to probably go ahead and just cut off this. And uh, uh, anyway, once once again to our listeners at uh, the Fullness of Meaning Christian Ministries and Word Horde W Y R D Horde H O A R D. Uh, you can go to any platform and uh, and check and check us out there. Um, we will be on within the next week. Uh, we will definitely uh, we'll launch that up really soon for you. Okie doke, and um, I'm going to sign off now. <laughs>